Oh, it's so good to be here with you. Thank you, Pastor and uh, and uh, Sally, for the gracious invitation. I, of course, my beloved could uh, be with you. baby shower for our our twin grandsons that are on the way in Peru, Illinois. So my beloved Cindy is is there in the, uh, Peru. Actually, she's back now in, uh, in Nelsonville where our kids passed her. But she went up there yesterday and got home real late last night. So um, uh, she felt obligated to be there, and um, I'm delighted to be here with you. In fact, I think there's a picture. Can I? Can I? Oh, there it is. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, that's my wife, Cindy, and this is our foster uh, daughter, uh, Courtney. We've had her since she was four weeks old. Uh, she showed up at our our doorstep, uh, malnourished, and had been abandoned by her mother for about um, a week and a half and uh, was quite traumatized, and we just, uh, well, I say we, <laughs> uh, my wife just loved her uh, with the grace of Jesus. We anointed her head with oil every night, and it was a matter of about a month, the night terrors went away completely uh, to where she is just a thriving uh, little girl. When you think about us, if you do, again, if you would uh, just pray for us, we're in that time now where we're... Um, moving toward reunification, and you know all the dynamics that happen with that. And so we uh, so glad that mom is doing better, and boy, that was our heart's prayer, that she would have an experience with Jesus and that she'd get uh, things together, and so we're grateful for that. But there's so many other variables in all that, so um, if you would just uh, pray, we know that Jesus loves her more than uh, more than we do, and um, we just want uh, his best for her. So uh, thank you for doing that, and, and uh, Cindy sends her regrets that she couldn't be here. Well, this is uh, Pastor Appreciation Month. Did you know that? I hope you're planning to appreciate your pastors because they're, they're pretty awesome. And would you just join me in saying thank you to Pastor Brad, Pastor Sally, uh, uh, Pastor Roger and Sharon and Pastor Walker and um, Pastor Brad and, and their spouses, would you, I think Pastor Brad has a spouse to be, right? Isn't he the one getting married? Okay. Uh, could you join me? Can we just say thanks to them this month? And God bless you, leaders. Thank you, Pastor Walker. And I, uh, I hope you're planning to, to bless them and to minister to them. When I pastored in Iowa, I was bivocational, so I, I know the struggle uh, that it is for these pastors to to, um, boy, your heart is so for the church, and, and yet, you know, you need to provide for your family, and, and uh, there's just that tension, and so I hope you'll pray extra hard for them when you see a UPS truck or some other thing that reminds you, just, Lord, bless Pastor today, you know, give him a good day, help him to get those packages delivered, help him not to get bit by any dogs or, or shot by any homeowners, Lord, just in Jesus' name, just uh, pray over them, because uh, you know their heart is is to, to be more fully uh, giving themselves to, to the ministry. Uh, Pastor Sharon, God bless you and Roger. Um, what a wonderful foundation. You look, look at this house. It's uh, all the people here and the blessing of God. And um, I'm always reminded, Pastor Sharon, of the story of David, who gathered all the resources for his son, right? So his son 
could actually build the temple. And so when I read through that story, I think of uh, this matriarch and patriarch of this house who, who laid such a beautiful foundation, invested so much, and then gathered all kinds of resources so they could propel their son and daughter-in-law and other ministries just to release them, do everything they can behind the scenes to see to it that they're successful. And, uh, you know, that is very spiritual. It's not necessarily a lot in the limelight, but I tell you, uh, God sees that stuff. And um, we are so thankful for your incredible uh, ministry here that continues, and uh, we're grateful for it. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5? Luke chapter 5. I was asking the Lord what I should share with you today, and I, I went different directions. You know, I, I wish pastors could get a handwriting on the wall sometimes. You know, like, what should I pray? I bring to the people, Lord, and we're seeking him. But as I was just sort of thumbing through the Gospels and um, I was so thankful in listening a little bit to Pastor's message last week. Um, I, I appreciate how Jesus-centric this church is. You, you might actually be surprised that there are churches that sometimes when you listen to their broadcast, the name of Jesus isn't mentioned very often. And I was so pleased to hear the name of Jesus, who he is, the person of Jesus, what he does, that this house result revolves around that one person. It's it's all about him. And uh, uh, thank you, Pastor, for that for that focus. So I thought it would be good for us to look at the person of Jesus and um, look at uh, his interaction with uh, a couple of individuals and. Uh, two people in particular, there's really four in this chapter, but uh, I'll, I'll not be this long-winded. I'm just going to share with you two, and maybe Pastor will cover the other two, or I'll come back and cover the other two sometime. But uh, who are the types of people that Jesus has something uh, to say to, and, and what is it that he has to say to them? And I've always been uh, amazed at the focus of Jesus and who he went to and the people that he paid attention to and the people that caught his attention, whether it was a blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me, and he cries out. And, and Jesus stops this incredible parade and says, come here, come here. And, and the disciples say, Lord, what in the world? You know, you've got, you got an agenda ahead of you to die on the cross for all the sins of all mankind throughout the ages. How do you have time for this blind beggar? And yet Jesus brings him to himself and heals him. So I'm very interested in, in what he has to say um, to them and the people uh, that he chooses to talk to. And I I'm, was curious at some of the implications that that has for my own life. And so I walked away from putting these thoughts together, saying, Lord, thank you that, that you want to talk to me. Have you ever been invited to a place where you felt like you really weren't invited? <laughs> you know, you kind of walked in and, and you immediately felt this awkward kind of, you know, it's for everybody else but you. I'm just so thankful that Jesus is not that kind of host. Jesus is so inviting, regardless of our stuff, regardless of what we think keeps us at a distance. Jesus is so welcoming and so inviting that he bids us to come no matter where we find ourselves. And I believe these two stories illustrate that and just reminds us of the incredible grace that, that we all need uh, from him. 
Now, anytime we study the Bible, it's always good to, to think about context. You've probably heard your pastor talk about that. In other words, where, where is the story placed, and why is it placed here, and what's kind of going around, or what's happening around these two stories, so that you can get a better idea. Uh, maybe in your life, you've had your words taken out of context. You've heard that said, you know, where somebody says, well, wait a minute, you, you, missed, you missed the rest of the story. I wish you could have heard some of that uh, to, to get the whole picture. You just pulled a few of my words, and you've stretched them and, and, ha and exaggerated them so that they actually mean something that, in context, they did not mean at all. So it's important for us to try to understand what the context is. So I want to share with you, in, in just in Luke chapter 4, there's a couple of points of context that will, I think, help us uh, maybe grow from this and, and understand more about the people of choice he wants to talk to. So in, in Luke chapter 4, you know, he's been baptized. He's been sent into the desert by the Spirit. He's been empowered by the Spirit. He has that incredible temptation where the enemy tries to really do away with him, but Jesus was victorious. And then in verse 14, it says that he came out of the desert, again, in the, in the power of the Spirit, and he begins to minister in the power of the Spirit. He begins to heal people and, 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 and do incredible miracles. All of those are signs that, that point them ultimately to God, but point them to himself so that they can have a relationship with the Father. So the signs are there for a purpose. And so his popularity is spreading. And in the middle of that, you see in verse 22... It says, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were following from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now, I've grown up in Assemblies of God churches all my life, and particularly in Kansas City area, a long time. And when I got called into the ministry, I can remember some of the old ladies who knew about my, my ways <laughs> in the church, and he's he's called into the ministry? <laughs> what? You know, really? And it wasn't that I was a bad guy. They just, they just couldn't see me in that role for sure. You know, is, is he? And do you notice, they, isn't this Joseph's son? I thought he was an apprentice to be a carpenter like his dad. What, what, is, what is going on there? And my, my thought in all of this was that, you know, if we're not careful, we can captivate Jesus to our own perception of who he is and what he wants to do. But Jesus is always bigger than your current understanding of him. And if we're not careful, our tradition will lock us into saying things like or thinking things like, this is the way that Jesus has to do it. Or this is the way he moves in my life. Or this is how he's going to solve this problem. And what we do is we end up locking or boxing in the person and work of the Holy Spirit whose goal is to always magnify and exalt the great name of Jesus. So just be teachable in your perspective of who God is and know that he's always bigger than who you think he is. Amen? Secondly, in verse 42... He goes to some villages, and he begins to heal and minister to them. And it says, And when day came, Jesus left, verse 42 of chapter 4, to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. 
So here Jesus, a great miracle revival is happening, and what's he do? He breaks away to be in a secluded place to pray. That's, that's often contrary to what a lot of evangelists will do, right? They don't usually go to a secluded place when great things are happening. They're, they're putting up more posters, right? Jesus says, I got to get away to be with Father. I want to go to a secluded place. Well, they find him, and they say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We are in, this is like Brownsville of Galilee, right? Uh, remember Brownsville Revival? This is Brownsville of Galilee. Please, whatever you do, don't leave us. Right here, things are happening. Let's keep it going. Here's my takeaway from that. What Jesus does in your life is never meant to be a monument but is meant to be a platform upon which you begin to minister to other people. If you ever want to restrict Jesus just to your blessing, you've missed the heart of Jesus. Your blessing is not only what he does in you, but your blessing is equally of what he does through you as a result of what he's done in you. Don't try to hang on to him. So here he goes, chapter 5. He begins to minister to two, um, more than two people, but two people in particular. The first, Simon Peter, and the second is a, is a leper that desperately needs the healing of Jesus. Let's look at the first story, beginning in verse 1. I call this the story of a, a stinky, depressed, or discouraged fisherman. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he, Jesus, saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, and asked Peter to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down, and began, the teaching, and began teaching the people from the boat. So if you know anything about water, water is sort of a natural acoustic. Have you ever, my, my kids live uh, sort of on a lake. It's just a little bit down from their house. It's not their lake. But Toby and I, my grandson, like to go down there and fish. And mom can hear our conversation up at the house because our, our voices are echoing off the water and she can hear. Jesus understood acoustics, right? So he, he gets out so he can teach the, the multitudes. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said to him, Master, we worked all night and we've caught nothing. But I will do as you say and I'll let down the nets. And when he had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their buddies in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they actually began to sink. I would say that's a, a good catch. I spent 14 years in Alaska, and we loved, loved to fish hunt, and it's just the grandest place on earth for any of that. And I know what it's like when you're dip netting for red salmon. Anybody like red, fresh red salmon? It's like, oh, I mean, it's just, they'll serve it at the last supper after we have the bread and the, and the, and the drink. It's just the best. Now, that's not the same as that farm stuff that you, we have to eat down here. I can't even eat it. It's so bad, but not the same. 
But I can remember getting 30 and 40 and 50 of those in a matter of three hours and putting them in the boat. It's, a, it's quite a catch. Well, this is much greater than that because the boat was sinking. Our boat wasn't sinking, but we had a big catch. And so when Simon Peter sees this, he falls down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which fish they had taken. And also were James and John's, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, for now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. Jesus takes time to minister to stinky, discouraged fishermen. Maybe you have had times in your journey with God when it was kind of a season of the same olds. You know what the same old is? Same old, not a lot of fruitfulness. Lord, what are you up to? Um, any life change you want to be doing in my life, anything I should be up to, we just sort of go through these seasons that are a, a little more deserty, if I could call it that. But I think in this exchange, uh, there are some clues that we can discover about how we can develop a more fruitful life with God, and I want to share with you those few things. The first is pay attention to little steps of obedience. Pay attention to little steps of obedience. You all remember the, the movie, What About Bob? It's a, I know I'm dating myself, but this, this guy's laughing. It's a, kind of an older movie. It looks like you, and, but you've seen it, haven't you, obviously? Your laugh kind of sounds like Bob, actually. <laughs> that freaked me out. I thought Bob was here. <laughs> That's bizarre. <clears throat> it's, it's Bill Murray. It's a, it's a funny movie, and it's a Dreffel House or whatever his name is, Dressel, uh, something, Dreyfus, that's it. Funny, funny, funny. He's a psychologist, and, and Bob needs help. And so Bob's advice to him is always, you know, baby steps, Bob, baby steps, baby steps. Okay, oh, you're wonderful, baby steps, baby steps, you know, what I'm supposed to do. Well, there is something very powerful in the kingdom about little steps of obedience. Notice that Jesus told Peter, push out a, a little ways, just a little bit uh, from the land. Just, just push out a little bit. I, I, have, I have some teaching plans, and then I have some miracle plans. But Peter, this is what I want you to focus on. I want you to just step out a little bit from the land. I've discovered in my journey with God that God rarely gives us grand plans to follow. God simply says, I am the map, and follow the little obediences that I give you. He normally just offers little obedience that he wants us to pay attention to. So most of our growth in the Lord is not a result of something cataclysmic. Now, all of us have had incredible times when God met us, whether it was a divine healing and you know God touched you. Maybe it was the presence of God and you were overwhelmed by his presence. Maybe you fell back in the weight of his presence. I mean, just an experience in God that was incredible. But I will tell you, after walking with the Lord since I was uh, <laughs> delivered from a life of debauchery at age five, <laughs> um, <laughs> growing up in the church, that's, I'm being humored, um, that 
most of my growth in God has not been a result of something cataclysmic, though he does that. He does suddenlies. He does powerful things. But it, most of my growth in God has been a, a response to my decision to obey his whispers, the tiny obediences. Now, the problem with the tiny obediences is, is that because they seem so insignificant, like little mustard seeds, that we tend to think that can't be it. So we come to God with this, Lord, I have this huge problem. It's a, it's a huge door that needs to be open, right? I mean, it's, I, I, Lord, that's it. I mean, there's only one way, and that is for you, by your spirit, to battery ram this door and, and knock it down. I mean, that's what we're all waiting for, Lord. It's in my life. It's huge. It's the only way it's going to go away is if you come and knock this thing down. But we fail to remember that huge doors are often opened with little keys. Aren't you glad that most keys don't weigh as much as the door? Can you imagine trying to drag around your... No, but a key can open a huge door. And sometimes we ignore the keys because they seem so insignificant. So I challenge you, what has the Lord been saying to you that you have been ignoring? That you have been discrediting? That you have thought, no, that can't be it, that can't be it. I'm, Lord, no, really, Lord, I need a word from you. I mean, I need a word. I don't need that word. I need a word from you. You know, the one that just, woo, woo, woo. I mean, it has waves or billows of, of rustling of wind, you know, that God really gets. Sometimes it's just a, Paul paid more attention to this. Uh, Paul, love your wife like I love the church. Paul, stop, stop doing that. Paul, before you walk in the door, just sit in your car, spend a little bit of time with me so you don't take all your stuff inside. And let's deal with the stuff of the day so that you can minister to your family. Paul, step, step, step over here. Sometimes when the bullets are coming at us, the Lord's just simply saying, just take a few steps to the right. We're thinking we need missiles from heaven to knock out the enemy, and the Lord's just saying, why don't you just step behind this rock? And we miss what the Lord is trying to do, and our growth and progress in God is usually made up, as Isaiah says, line upon line, precept upon precept. It's not about the huge obediences. It's about your attention to the little obediences. So what do you need to listen to? Secondly, I find in this story that when you let the Lord step into your life, he will use whatever he steps into for the good of other people. So he steps into Peter's boat, right? And the boat becomes the platform upon which he ministers to a multitude of people. Anytime you relinquish any of your life to him, and by the way, that is being a follower of Jesus, to not relinquish your life is really to say to him, I am not going to follow you. Following him means we relinquish our life 
so that he can step into the boat of our life and use our resources, use our time, use our priorities, use whatever makes us us for his glory and for his good. And you will find that when you do that, the Lord will gloriously wreck your life. I mean, he will, he will sink your boat <laughs> with the goodness of God and your life being used to minister to other people. And there's nothing more satisfied, satisfying than that, than to have a life that has been used for the glory of God. Uh, Peter, Peter finds this out, doesn't he? Uh, Peter uses his boat, lets God use his boat, and as a result, uh, something incredible happens. They not only catch an incredible number of fish, but others are blessed as well, not only by the catch, but by the encounter, as Peter is blown away in verse 8, what does he say? Oh, oh God, just get away from me. I'm a sinful man. I mean, he recognizes exactly what's happened, that this is a miraculous thing. We fished all night and caught nothing. You just say, put your net on the other side, and in a matter of minutes, the nets are full, and our boats are breaking down because of the incredible surplus of fish. I am a wicked man because I realize I'm in the presence of, of holiness and presence of a miracle-working God. I think Peter knows it's a miracle, obviously. He's afraid that the wrongness in his life, that somehow maybe even Jesus would get spiritual cooties from him. Stay away from me, Lord. I am a wicked man. Oh, no, don't even come close to me. I realize who you are by this incredible miracle. And somehow, maybe as he walked away and bowed down, he would say, Jesus, don't you realize you've picked the wrong person? I'm a wicked man, sinful man. Can I just help you get over your sinful stuff? You are God's choice. If you are here today and you have a relationship with him, it is not because of something that you initiated. Jesus, the Bible says, by his spirit, drew you to the Father. You responded. But the initiation of the relationship was not you. It was him. The continuation of the relationship and his continuing desire to use you is not going to be based upon whether or not you feel sinful or whether or not you feel righteous. You are his. You belong to him. You may not be walking in fellowship with him. And you may feel like my response, if Jesus said to me, I want to use your boat, I want to start using the, the boat of your life to minister to people, oh, Lord, I'm a sinful person. No, no, no. You know all about me. I can't be used. And the devil has got you right where he wants you. Because the Lord knows all about your sinfulness. And yet he wants to use your boat of your life to minister to other people. It's what he does. And he takes time to talk to a stinky fisherman to say, I want to use your life. I know all about you, Peter. But if you'll just let me use your boat, some incredible things will happen. 
I'll not only wreck your boats, but I'll wreck your life, and I'll transform your life. And you will not only now catch a bunch of big fish, but you will now be a fisherman of people. You see, the Lord not only changes our identity. Pastor was talking about that. Child of God. I am a child of God, right? We were singing about it. He not only changes our identity, but he changes our vocation to where we're, we're not just a school teacher. No, we're a child of God that God uses the platform of teaching for his glory and for his honor. God uses the platform of a UPS driver. God uses the platform of a grocery store clerk. God uses the platform of a physician, an insurance agent. It doesn't matter. It's not that those things are unspiritual. No, it's a calling that you're in. But in those platforms, you're stepping into that. Say, Lord, here's the boat of my occupation. Use it for your glory. And watch what God does. Second story is a, a leper. A leper. Let's read about it in chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in the middle of the cities, behold, there was a man who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored Jesus, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. That's a powerful phrase there. Stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I'm willing to be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. Wow. And he ordered him to tell no one. But go show, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Wow. Jesus heals a leper. What an amazing story indeed. Jesus reaches out to this leper, and what's so amazing about this story is that Jesus is willing to even come close to a leper. Leprosy in the Bible, or at least by the time of Jesus' time, became symbolic with a metaphor of sin and what sin does to a person. Uh, leprosy would affect nerve endings. There was no sensitivity when you would get leprosy. It's almost like, well, the worst case of neuropathy that you could think of, where you start losing feeling in limbs, but you would lose it much greater to where pieces of your limbs and phalanges would just rot and, and fall off. No sense of cut or bruise, they wouldn't feel it. There was affected your circulation and corruption begins to happen throughout the whole body. Uh, these individuals were considered unclean. They would have to yell out, unclean, unclean, because a clean person coming within a certain proximity of them would actually be considered unclean. So it basically became symbolic of something that God never intended for us to be. By the way, that's what sin does. Sin remakes you. Sin makes you into something that God never intended for you to be. That's the power of sin. And gods have a way of changing our lives and remaking us after their image. 
Well, sin does that. It just it brings ruination into our life, and we end up looking like something we were never intended to look like before. And so I, I'm convinced all of us have leprous parts of our lives. We have a cleanliness. We have shame that makes us back away, right? Shame is a powerful thing, isn't it? Situations that make us feel too dirty to get close to Jesus. And here's this man who doesn't want to get close to Jesus, but makes his way through the crowds to somehow get the cleansing that he needs. So how do we get over whatever it is that's shaming us? How do we receive the healing of Jesus that we desperately need? How do we get over the stuff that keeps us from a distance? I found it interesting in our journey with God, at least in mine, that sometimes when I would really blow it, I often felt like if I just wouldn't talk to God for a few days, it would let him cool off a little bit. And then when I go back in a few days, you know, hey, God, how you doing? I just thought I'd pick up your Bible again and start reading it and, and hoping you forgot all about the last three days or whatever. I mean, it's, isn't it weird? And I discovered that, well, that's what I did with my dad. You know when your dad's mad at you? I mean, come on, you know, he's mad and upset, and it was just like this tension, and you're like, okay, I'm just going to stay away. And then you sort of feel out the room a little bit, like, what's, what's dad's attitude or temperament? Has he, ever, has he gotten over it? And then suddenly, dad would just sort of be a little nicer, and I'd feel like, oh, well, hi, dad. How's it going? And so we never would talk through the stuff. I just would wait till he kind of got over it, so I would feel like I was uh, safer, if you, if you will, right? So... We do that with God. And isn't that the weirdest thing in the whole world? This is the king of the universe, by the way. He knows all about you. He knows you better than yourself, and you're doing this. I don't think I'll come to you for a while because you need to cool off. It's so silly, isn't it? So what can we do to help us when we feel shamed and are keeping ourselves at a distance like this leper? First of all, did you notice in verse 12, humble yourself at Jesus' feet. The man fell down at Jesus' feet. Have, have mercy on me. If you are in bondage, if you are disfigured in any way, addictions, ongoing cycles of defeat in your life, sinful behaviors, um, feel like you're stuck, the best thing to do always is to humble yourself at Jesus' feet and say, Son of God, have mercy on me. Humility means that only the Lord has anything meaningful to say about my sin and my condition. Ultimately, that's what matters. And only he has really the power to address it. There are weird sides of humility. The one is we want to be a defense attorney with humility. Well, well, Lord, I, I know I wasn't supposed to do that. I mean, I do this with my wife all the time. Well, honey, I know. I know I probably shouldn't have said that to you. But can I give you the mound of evidence of your behavior prior to what I just did? You actually are the cause of the reason I did this, honey. <laughs> 
So I present this mound of evidence that is overwhelming. I can overwhelm her normally, even though she's quite verbal. She can overwhelm me with her writing ability. I can overwhelm her with my verbal ability. So, so she journals something that's very convicting to me, and I can bleh, say things that are sometimes very convicting and hurtful to her. But humble people don't hire defense attorneys. Humble people say, I did it, it was me, I'm sorry, forgive me, what do you want me to do, Lord? It's not, oh, have you looked at Joe? <laughs> Lord, Joe, I can't believe you're letting him off the hook. Joe's doing the same thing. And the Lord's like, this isn't about Joe, it's about you. So don't be a defense attorney, but also please don't be a prosecuting attorney. Sometimes believers are so hard on themselves, they won't even worship the God who's forgiven them. God graciously forgives you. In fact, the psalm that says, he stands ready to forgive. You know what ready is? Do you, you remember your, if you played ball, I played ball and sports and all that fun stuff all through high school. And I remember when I was a youngster in peewee, Little League Baseball, they threw me in the outfield till I got better and, and didn't get much activity out there, right? I remember the coach always saying, Paul, they called me Mac. Mac, are you ready? <coughs> you know, yeah, I'm ready. But that meant for me to get in my, my stance, right? I'm ready. I'm ready for the ball that never comes out here, right? Because these are little kids that can't hit it past the infield, but I'm ready, you know, and I'll act ready. But I wanted to be ready. The psalmist says that the Lord stands ready to forgive. Isn't that a wonderful posture to think about God? When you blow it, he's ready to forgive you? What if you said that to the significant people in your life? You know what? I know you're going to fail me in the next week or two, but I just want you to know I am so ready to forgive you because I love you so much. You know what? That'll blow, blow them away, won't it? I mean, it'll re revolutionize your relationship. There's nothing you can do that I will not forgive you for. We're so hard on ourselves. Don't be a prosecuting attorney. If you condemn yourself, you're not being humble. You're actually doing the work of the enemy whose role is to condemn. And it stifles your movement. Your best is to say, be it unto me, Lord, according to your word, and humble yourself before him. Secondly, how do I get close to the Lord when I feel shamed or when I feel like there are leprous issues in my life? Secondly, believe that Jesus is willing to touch the dirtiest place in your life. Verse 12, Jesus said, I'm willing, and what did he do? He reached out his hand. Isn't this amazing? He reaches out his hand, and what does he do? He touches the leper. Immediately unclean. By the way, leprosy was contagious. Jesus is willing to touch this man. There's this giant chasm between these type of people and God, and Jesus reaches across it and touches this man's dirty, dirty life and body. Uh, we're really funny people. I, I mentioned earlier about how we, uh, silly things we do in our relationship with God, and like he doesn't already know everything before we even bring stuff to him. But 
we're funny people when we invite the Lord to come over for, for dinner um, or others for dinner for that matter. Do you, do you work like a frenzy? Um, we lived in a parsonage for a little while and people were just out of the blue and boom, 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 knock on the door and we had this code, you know, like code red. And so that was a thing to throw everything in the closet, you know, just get the two main areas clean because they're coming over and you open the door, well, hello, you know. And, and I actually solved that problem of people, they were coming over like all the time. And we're very hospitable, we loved it. But I made this comment once that, that I usually just run around in my underwear in the house. And you know what, I, the whole knocking went, went away. So I, I really wasn't intending that to have such an adverse effect. But, and I don't really do that, but it, it's, I guess that sort of fixed it, but it's kind of funny. So aren't we funny that we invite Jesus to dinner and we clean all up and uh, we get stuff pushed in the closet and yet he comes and, and by the way, do you like to vacuum? I love to vacuum. I vacuum every day. I just absolutely love to vacuum. So I love to vacuum where I can put lines in the carpet. Have you seen those? And he's like, oh, and then I'm like, nobody ever walk on this carpet again. And this is... Well, we get it. We get our life all cleaned up, and the Lord comes, and we're like, "Have a seat here in the beautifully clean living room." You know what the problem is with Jesus? Is he roams? Have you ever had a guest that roams? <laughs> Susan, I haven't seen your house, and there they go. <laughs> They're going to that closet. Oh, don't open that! It may fall out. All this stuff, you know. Don't go in the bedroom. Don't. Why are you in here? You know. And we're trying to keep people at bay except into those two or three rooms that we've cleaned up. Jesus wanders. He goes into the kitchen, the laundry room, the bedroom, the closets. And it's like we don't want him to get near those dirtiest places. Now, do we see how, can you just think about that for a minute? Again, this is the God who knows all, and yet we're not inviting him into every closet of our soul, just the clean ones. In fact, sometimes we, we say, Lord, I know you're the ultimate garbage collector. You just in with the bad or in with the good and out with the bad. That's what you do. You know, you just, you just take it out. In fact, we might even say to the Lord, I, there's no garbage in here. Look at these three rooms. And yet we know full well there's a closet of addiction right down the hall, right? There's a really dirty attitudinal room. There's a whatever that sin is, it's there. And yet Jesus roams. Friends, you will never be healed of your leprous places if you don't invite him to touch your dirtiest places. And the Lord never tires of doing that. I, I mean, we think that by asking again and again, that somehow we, he might say, you know, we've been down this street already. You're coming back with that same dirty room. Are you serious? I've forgiven you a hundred times for that. You're back again? Yes, we are, Lord. Why? Because he stands ready to forgive The alternative is devastating to your spiritual life. 
When I pastored in Alaska, we had some people that newly came to Jesus. And then they kept coming to the altar all the time. And they would confess their sin again. And I need to get saved again. And we'd pray with them again. I remember one of the elders pulling me aside and said, Pastor, can you just tell them they don't need to come to the altar anymore? And I said, not on your life. The moment we get to the place where we feel like we don't need these altars is the time when we've said basically to the Lord, I've got two or three rooms that are in good shape and none of these other places really matter. And that's not a good place to be. Because Jesus came to cleanse these vessels and to transform us from glory to glory to glory. And so the more you are open to the Lord touching every closet room of your heart, the more his glory will be manifested, even if you have to bring that closet to him over and over and over again. You know what? I'll take it over somebody that says, just forget it. There's no use anymore. He's, he's done with me. It's just not true. He stands ready to touch your dirtiest place. So humble yourself and let him reach out and touch your dirtiest place. And when he does touch your dirtiest place, the third point is this. Jesus told the man after he was whole, go show yourself to the priest and let him basically verify the fact that you were whole. We believe in the supernatural power of God. In fact, I'm a little concerned as an Assemblies of God minister that our churches are moving away from believing for the miraculous intervention of God. It's concerning. Thank you for contending for the miraculous. We believe that. But when God does touch you, you don't have to get weird. God didn't say, be weird, for I am weird. <laughs> he said, be holy, for I am holy. So when the Lord heals you, it's okay to go back to your doctor and have him verify it. In fact, use it as a marvelous platform, as a witness of what God has done within your body. You don't have to throw off your glasses and stomp them to the ground if you think the Lord's completely healed your eyesight. That's a good way to run into somebody, <laughs> right? Because sometimes we think the Lord's done something, we find out, whoa, I guess that wasn't the case. But if he has, and I would sure be delighted, let your, is that ophthalmologist? Let the, let the eye guy say, uh, Paul, here's your record last time, and here it is this time. I don't know what's happened, but your vision has, like, normalized. And I can say, yeah, can I tell you what happened? I went up, and the Lord had some guys pray for me, and boom. Let the healing grace of God, when he touches your dirtiest place, be a platform upon which then you can declare what God has done for you. It's not really meant for you to keep that in secret, though there are some things that are very personal. But in Western Christianity, that's us here in the United States, Western Christianity, we have so individualized Christianity that we fail to remember that when God does something for us, that actually becomes prophetic for somebody else. Not pathetic, but prophetic. 
that God can do it for you. Can I tell you, I left him out of the closet of my life for 10 years, and I've started inviting him in every day to that area. And can I tell you that line upon line, precept upon precept, I'm obeying him, and I'm seeing progress in that area, and I've lived in victory in that area for about three months, and I'm thanking God for that. You see, the Lord doesn't just deliver us of selfishness. Wouldn't that be nice? That's the answer, antidote, by the way, to 90% of marriage problems, is we're selfish. You can't deliver yourself unless you want to get in a casket. That's the only way to deliver yourself is to die. No, no. We live under the jurisdiction of the Spirit in our attitudes and in our behavior so that day by day we live out the lordship of Jesus in our behavior toward one another. And that allows then for people to see a difference within us as we live under the lordship of Jesus. That is a daily thing that I have to die to myself. I wake up, Lord, help me to love Cindy today in a way that honors you and dies to myself. A stinky fisherman, Jesus had time to step into the boat of his life. Listen to those little obediences. Let God use your life and see how he gloriously wrecks it for the good of others and for his name's sake. If you have leprous areas of your life, can I encourage you to fall at his feet and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Don't bring your excuses. Don't bring your... Tell him, bring all the reasons why you're so bad. No, no, no. Just fall at his feet and say, Lord, whatever you want, forgive me. Show me how to live. I'm coming to you again. Touch my life and heal me. And the good news is that he's willing. He is willing to touch every area of your life. We are construction projects that will never end until Jesus comes. So invite him into the project. He's the chief guy, by the way. And the Holy Spirit will begin to work on you and to make you more and more like Jesus as you bring every area of your life to him. So when we sing the song, he is Lord, he is Lord, what we're saying is, Lord, let every area of my life be lived out under the lordship of Jesus. Aren't you thankful that Jesus still talks to stinky, dirty, discouraged fishermen and aren't you thankful that God still talks to leprous people like me who have areas of their life that need his touch this morning? And he still comes and says, Paul, I am willing. Would you stand with me, please? Father.